This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we examine the betrayals, yes, plural, of Jesus and discuss which characters are involved in it. Plural betrayals. It's going to sound like Jonah tried to tell me there was more than one fish. <laughs> Crazy podcast. It's one betrayal. I know the story of Jesus. Or do we? I think we do. We just don't realize it. Right. Exactly. Good answer. I like that. All right. Let's talk about betrayal. Let's talk about Judas. He's the one we know we got coming, right? We got to talk about Judas. One of the most interesting characters in the Gospels, Judas Iscariot. We, uh, we have a lot of thoughts and feelings about Judas, and we project a lot of stuff onto Judas, mind you. And I, 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 find, I found a deeper understanding. Um, it comes from the cultural setting of the conversation, uh, and it's much more. It's been much more helpful in my learning of the story. By the way, learning of the story, learning from the story, is the reason that we study the Bible. Just to remind ourselves, we don't study the Bible to have feelings. I mean, we do. That's beautiful. We should share that. I'm not. That's it. That came off really harsh. Feelings are fine. I'm not trying to make this cold. But we study the Bible to be provoked. We study the Bible to be changed. We study the Bible to learn from the story, not just form opinions um, and, and get feelings from the story. So just a reminder, we kind of get lost in that sometimes. Um, I think learning about the person of Judas is what brings uh, a, a little bit of humanity to the story, particularly of Judas. Not that I'm going to try to save him here necessarily. That's not where I'm headed. But it brings humanity to Judas, brings humanity to the disciples, uh, brings humanity to the story of Jesus' betrayal. Uh, We don't know a whole lot about Judas from the text until the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, We know that Judas is, some of the things we know before that, we know that Judas is in charge of the money. Uh, It becomes clear that the disciples uh, are certainly, particularly the writers of the Gospels, they're definitely identifying him as the betrayer. Like they definitely want him from the very beginning to be identified as Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, Judas, the betrayer. Um, and they keep wanting to point out that Judas is present the whole time, even though he's going to betray Jesus. That's important to the disciples. Um, it, it seems from one gospel that he has at least a pseudo concern. It might not be real, but at least it's a pseudo concern for the poor. But John's gospel seems to suggest that Judas is dipping into the money bags, a little thief stealing off the top. So I don't know what we do with that tension. But what might, what might help us the most for today, Brent, is to look at his name. What's his name? Tell me his name. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Iscariot is a combination of the Hebrew ish. Remember what ish meant, Brent? Uh, man. Man. Ish, man, and karyot, which gives, uh, it's going to give us Judas, man from karyot. That's what his name means. Um, there is at least somewhat significant evidence to suggest that karyot was a zealot compound. At least that's one of the main scholarly theories that I particularly agree with. Knowing this about Judas could help us learn a lot about him. Um, let's see here. As, as pseudo-concerned for the poor, as zealots, they would have been increasingly frustrated with the oppression of their Jewish brothers, particularly of sympathetic Jewish brothers. Like they're a part of which larger group, Brent? The zealots are part of the... The Hasidim. The Hasidim, right? And they're, they've got their Pharisee brothers and sisters that don't necessarily carry the sword, but they kind of are sympathetic. So if you're going to have a pseudo-concern for the poor, it's going to be this zealot that's like, yeah, all my Jewish brothers are poor because this Roman worldview, this Hellenism is coming in there and destroying our world. 
Zealots are often thieves at heart, believing in a Robin Hood mentality of taking what was needed for the greater good. Is that why Judas is stealing from the money bags? It's possible. I can imagine Judas immediately volunteering for the job of treasurer. In contrast to the nasty text collector, like if he's if Jesus is like, all right, we're going to need somebody to take care of the money, and Judas looks over and sees Matthew over there starting to raise his hand. He's like, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I got it, Jesus. I'll take care of it. I'm not going to let that tax collector do it. You know, I was just thinking of um, uh, what was the lady who was the wife of the treasurer for Herod? Oh, uh, let's see. I want to say Joanna. Joanna? Yes. Or Clopas. Well, Clopas, that's the other one. You want uh, Husa is the name Husa. you're thinking of. Joanna, the wife of Husa. Ah, uh, uh, yes. So anyway, so if if they're walking around with a bunch of Herod's money, then it would kind of make sense that sure. Jesus would be taking that money and giving it back to his Ooh, I didn't Jewish think brothers. about that. Absolutely. Uh, all this, by the way, somewhat speculation, but based on good assumptions, I think. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. If this money is being... This funding of Jesus's ministry, and Brent is referencing here uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 3, um, talks about uh, the women that are supporting Jesus. There's these three women. They're bankrolling Jesus's ministry. One of them, her name is Joanna, uh, along with Mary Magdalene and another gal named Susanna. But Joanna is the wife of Husa. Husa is the treasurer for Herod Antipas, which means in a backdoor kind of a way, Herod Antipas ends up funding Jesus's ministry because... It's his money that is being made by Husa and his household, which is being given back to or given to Jesus. So it's just kind of so if Judas would have known that, he would have had this really self righteous indignation about that. Where did I get Clopas? Uh Clopas comes from um at the at the resurrection, there is a Mary, the wife of Clopas. Oh, there it is. Okay. At the at the cross. It's because you know your Bible so well, Brent. Well, it's just oozing out of you. Yeah, yeah, I know it so well. <laughs> yeah, we we didn't talk about Mary Magdalene and all the people around her like a week and a half ago. It wasn't that. Uh, wasn't that. Uh, I didn't think about that. That's a great idea. Anyway, nevertheless, uh, this truly helps us understand what's going on in the betrayal of of, of Jesus himself. It, it's totally probable. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to argue like even more than probable. Like, I'm going to argue this is almost an assumption we can make. After hearing Jesus's electrified and confrontational teachings directed at, who did he go after, Brent, that last week? He went into Jerusalem chasing after who? The chief priest. The chief priest. Now, who does the zealot just, outside of just pure Romans, who does the zealot absolutely despise? The chief priests are like de facto Romans. They're, they're almost worse than a Roman because they're a Jew who is like in the pocket of the Roman. Absolutely. We know from history, the zealots actually killed one of the high priests in the temple courts. Like that's the disdain they had for the chief priesthood. Uh, so, so Jesus goes in there and I imagine Judas is at a whole week of this. Judas is just chomping at the bit, right? After a week of those teachings, Judas misreads Jesus intentions. Uh, most of the disciples did, by the way, Jesus ends his ministry. Most of the disciples think that he's a zealot. Like, even when he gets arrested, they're shocked that he kind of turns himself over. They all run. Any conversations they do have at that last, kind of that last night, that last weekend, post-resurrection, like, all those conversations, it's it's all about, like, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Like, they don't get it. They think Jesus is trying to restore this zealot-led revolution, and maybe they believe it's going to come with swords. Maybe they don't. I don't know what they've picked up from Jesus's teaching, but they definitely have misidentified him and identified him more as a zealot. 
So it makes sense that Judas would misread these signs. And what he's trying to do in the betrayal of Jesus is Judas is trying to kickstart the revolution. Like Judas is so amped up that he, what he's doing as a zealot is he's trying to force Jesus's hand. He's here to confront. He's here to start a war. I'm going to get this thing started by setting up what he thinks isn't a betrayal. In his mind, I'm going to force the chief priest to show up and Jesus is going to have to, you know, kick some butt and take some names. That's where he thinks this is headed. And yet, um, that's not at all what's going to happen. This would also offer an explanation as to why Judas is so wrecked with guilt at the end of the story that he commits suicide. Like he completely misreads the situation. When he realizes that he has betrayed his rabbi, which is not what he thought he was doing in my mind. He thought he was doing the right thing. But when he realizes he actually betrayed his rabbi and started a process that led to his execution, he can't even believe his misfortune and, and, and try to even bear his misdeeds. So there's actually an author, his name is Peter Rollins. He wrote in a book, uh, Fidelity of Betrayal. By the way, uh, we should put this in here first. Um, when we're talking about zealots, Judas being a zealot, we should probably link in our show notes, Brent, the episode from the beginning of session three, episode 79, I believe you said, correct? And it is the episode on zealots. So to remind ourselves, okay, like if you're sitting there going, okay, now who is a zealots and all those kind of things, uh, look at episode 79 there. But, uh, Peter Rollins is an author and a thinker and a philosopher and a theologian, if you will. He wrote a book called Fidelity of Betrayal. Peter Rollins is kind of out there. He makes my head hurt whenever I read him. Um, I love listening to him. Great thinker. Uh, I can't stomach like book after book after book of him. I have to like read and just like let that book just kind of sit and do its work for a while. And then I can take some more. But I, I enjoy Peter Rollins. He, he stretches my mind. Um, he's a deconstructionist, all right? And he's gone so far as to say in the book Fidelity of Betrayal, uh, he suggests that Judas and Jesus actually had a prearranged agreement. That Jesus had asked Judas to betray him, knowing that uh, he would be one of the only ones with enough zeal to pull it off. I don't think Peter P- Rollins probably came up with this idea. This is just the book that I ran into. I'm sure other people have suggested this as well. Um, so he knows that Judas is a zealot. He needs a, He has a special task for him. And he says, Judas, I need you to betray me. Now, I, I don't necessarily agree with that theory wholeheartedly. Um, it does provide some insight into some of the statements that don't make sense in the Gospels. Like when Jesus leans over to Judas during the Passover and he says, what you need to do, do quickly. There's that reference. And you're like, what? what? Like, is that just a cryptic gog goggle statement of Jesus being like, hey, I know what you're up to. Wink. Go get it done. I think there might be, in my mind, maybe there's a middle ground here. Like, it's not necessarily a flat out prearrangement between Jesus and Judas. And yet Jesus knows where Judas is at. Jesus knows what Judas, and he's obviously made some comments. He's aware of what's going down. I don't know if he's heard some some back-channel conversations. I don't know if he just knows as a rabbi. I can tell you having a handful of disciples, there were times where I just knew what my disciples were kind of up to. And then there were times I didn't. But nevertheless, uh, there were times I kind of knew. Is that, is that what's going on? I, I don't know, but maybe there's like a, a middle ground here. Interesting theory. At any rate, It should be noted that even Judas has a phenomenal commitment to the text up to his last moment. If you're like, wait a minute, what? Have you ever considered why Judas throws his silver coins into the temple? By the way, how does he get into the temple? The story kind of has him doing that in the middle of the night. The temple is closed until the opening hours. The temple gates are closed. If If we actually believe it, the text says he threw them into the temple. Like not just on the temple mount, not just in the temple courts. Like he throws them into the temple. 
He had to have broken in there into a super sacred holy place to throw, get the coins into the temple, which is a very zealot thing to do, by the way. So also remember they killed the high priest on the temple mount on the, in the temple courts. Like they know that 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 is totally something they would do. Uh, You don't just run into the temple at night, let alone during the day. Of course, zealots were known for storing the temple courts and assassinating priests that they served. Considering the words of Zechariah, uh, you have Zechariah. Consider these words. He's going to denounce the shepherds. So consider the context here. Zechariah is denouncing the shepherds. Now, who would the shepherds be in Judas's mind, Brent? The priests. The priests, the chief yep. priests, right? So the context of this passage is very important. So Zechariah is giving a condemnation, a prophecy against the shepherds, and you're going to be reading from where? Uh, Zechariah chapter 11. The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them, and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die, and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. See, I think Judas, he's reading these words from Zechariah. He's memorized. He knows these words from Zechariah, and he's like, yeah, those stinking. I'm going to break my staff called favor. They no longer have God's favor. Go ahead. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. Okay, now how much did Judas get paid? Well, 30 pieces of silver. Now, I, I don't know if the... I almost have to believe that the Sadducees, that the chief priests knew there's almost, that has to be a tongue-in-cheek reference to this passage. Judas is seeing this passage one way. The chief priests are saying this passage another, but this fits his, now what does it say next, Brent? Go ahead. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff called Union breaking the family bond between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, Take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blinded. All right. So why does he throw these 30 pieces of silver into the temple? Because it's in the text. Because Zacharias said, I took that 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the pot, into the potter's house at the house of the Lord. And then this whole thing ends with that little condemnation. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword. And I, I wonder if Judas internalized those words. Should have been directed at, say, the, the chief priests. I wonder if he, I'm just wondering, pure speculation. I'm wondering if he internalized those words for himself, which is why he's so absolutely wrecked about what he's done. So he does that because of the text. Judas responds to his plight with great statements from the text. How badly we need to know our Bibles in order to understand truly the parts that we do read. Like, I think we just think, oh, he wanted to throw the money back at the priests. Like, none of us have realized until, until Ray pointed that out to me. I never knew that that was already in the text. Like the story was already written in Zechariah. And this one's a pretty easy one. Like, oh, gosh. In the English, you can clearly find this yeah. connection. So, yeah. So, But we just think like, oh, he wanted to give the blood money back, so he threw it at the temple because that's where the priests are. No, it's in the text. 
I continue to be struck by the realization that Jesus's disciples thought they were staging a zealot-like rebellion the entire time. This wasn't just Judas's error. Make no mistake about it. Up until Jesus's crucifixion and even after, the disciples are waiting for the great revolution. They think their rabbi is a zealot of some kind. Of course, it's easy to see how you might make a few of Jesus' teachings and believe that when he says, you know, I came to not bring peace but a sword, all those kind of things. But there's only a handful of statements, and we took time to look at those as we went through Matthew, at least. Those are usually remezas, hinting back at other prophecies. But maybe if I'm a disciple, I definitely hear those things as I want to hear them. Totally, totally human. In fact, it's kind of my point. It makes me wonder how often I misread the intent of Jesus. It makes me examine how often I might misunderstand what Jesus is trying to do in the world because of how I choose to hear some of his teachings while ignoring the text. I continue to be challenged by the story of Judas. This just happens all the time. You can know a teacher so well and hear their teachings, but you think you know what the teacher is doing, and yet you're getting those things wrong. I'm having this conversation with... uh, um, with, with a person in my life. I'll put it that way. And, uh, and this person thinks that they know like what, I, what I'm saying. And, and it's so tricky for me because I'm not saying that. I'm saying like the opposite of that. And they keep asking me like, well, well, well why won't you say this? And what I want to say is because, because I'm clearly not saying that. I'm saying the opposite thing. But they keep hearing the opposite through their own lens. Like I wonder if Jesus sat there and went, but I'm not trying to stage a revolution. I've just spent the last three years arguing for loving your enemies. Like, how can you be hearing this any other way? And yet they do. Uh, and even in my world, I can, I can appreciate that because I experience that right now. People listening to the podcast saying, okay, that's fine, but you need to say this. And I'm sitting here going, no, actually, I'm saying the opposite of that. Um, and I'm trying to say it very clearly, albeit gently. Um, and, and so this is just a really real thing. And, and I think we do it not just with Marty's podcast. Who cares about that? I think we do it when we read our Jesus. If the disciples did it, I think we have to be careful that we're not in danger of doing that very same thing. But you said betrayal, Brent, or betray? Betrayal is plural. Plural. Interesting. Because what's interesting here is Judas is clearly the betrayer. I'm not going to take anything away from that. The gospel writers are are super clear about that. In fact, they're almost too clear, Brent. Like, the gospel writers don't go out of their way to say things that are obvious. Like, if there's anything we know about the Bible, that's not how the Bible works. And yet every single time the gospels write about Judas, I shouldn't say every single time, at least half the times, we should actually go back and count, at least half the times they mention Judas... That could be interesting. They they mention that he's the betrayer. They identify him as the betrayer. And you're like, okay, I, I, I get it. It's certainly not uncommon. Right. It, it is very, it is almost, when, when he's mentioned, it's like, you know, the betrayer. It's awkwardly often, awkwardly often, I'll put it that way. And, and you have to start to ask yourself, why are the gospel writers doing that? And I think it's because if you're reading this story from a Jewish perspective, you do not identify Judas as the betrayer. I just told you that Judas misread Jesus, but he was trying to do what, Brent? He was trying to do the right thing. He's trying to do the right thing. Now, listen, let's just think like rabbis and disciples for a moment. Let's just think rabbinically. Rabbinically speaking, if you're a disciple and you're trying to get it right, but you get it wrong, 
that's totally fine. That's a part of the learning process. Now, listen, you can get it really, really wrong. And Judas totally did. <laughs> like, as in, got his rabbi killed wrong. So I'm not taking anything away from that. But you can make mistakes. But if your intent is that you're trying to do what the rabbi is asking you to do, that's not a betrayal. There's no problem there. You're just making a mistake and you're screwing it up and you're a really bad student. But that's not a problem. But let me tell you something. If you hand this story to an Orthodox Jew without Judas Iscariot being identified as the betrayer and you tell them there's a betrayer in this story, who is it? I promise you they don't come back with Judas. They come back with Peter because Peter does something that is absolutely, you don't come back from Peter's mistake. You can come back from Judas's mistake over and over again. You do not come back from Peter's mistake. Peter's is a true betrayal. So after running from the Sanhedrin's arrest on the Mount of Olives, John uses his connections with somebody, presumably a servant of the high priest's household. John, the the disciple John, probably has some connections to the chief priest family to get them into the private grounds of Jesus's trial. Remember, it was at where, Brent? We talked about this last week or last podcast. Caiaphas. Caiaphas's house. His house. And there was a courtyard, right? And that was in the podcast that we linked to the Sadducees, I believe. We had that presentation that we had there. As we've mentioned before, it should be noted that Jesus is not standing on a public trial in front of a formal Sanhedrin, but instead being tried informally and unjustly by the mafia-style Sanhedrin meeting at the high priest's house. This is clear from the text. We are told that Peter is in the courtyard hanging out with those who are warming themselves by the fire. While all the commotion is happening inside. Who would those people be that Peter's around? I would assume a lot of servants. Uh, not your head patriarchs. Maybe I don't know where the women and children are, but the family just all those, if you imagine like these, like I picture Godfather in my head, like all these mafia connected families gathering and the men all go off to do business, quote unquote business. It's probably everybody kind of else and maybe a mixture of all those different groups of people. Women, children, children might be asleep. Who knows? I don't know how it's operating. Servants, not the patriarchs, right? They're inside doing the trial. It's impressive to consider that John and Peter sneak onto the grounds of this house once we realize they are standing in the home of kind of that godfather figure, like the head of the mafia. Like they're, So they went from being scared and running away to really kind of putting their necks out here. Um, maybe they're trying to like stage a coup of some kind or get Jesus out. I don't know what they're thinking, but they are on enemy territory right now. Uh, as Peter has to keep a low profile, we have no idea what happens to John. He just, after getting them into the house, he kind of disappears. Jesus is persecuted and tried throughout the evening. As Peter is standing near the fire, he's confronted more than once about his identity. According to one gospel account, he even tries to leave the group and relocate and is still confronted about who he is. Eventually, exactly as Jesus predicted, Peter denies his association with the rabbi on trial inside, and we are told that he meets the gaze of Jesus himself as the rooster crows. In an eerie moment of the story, Peter rushes out of the courtyard to his home and proceeds to weep bitterly for what he has done. Not many of us catch the gravity of what Peter has just done. For a Talmud to publicly disassociate with the rabbi is unheard of in rabbinical discipleship. The truest form of a slap in a, 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 of the face of his teacher 
In fact, on a lot of levels, if you read this story in context, it's tempting to think that Peter's denial is a much deeper betrayal than that of Judas. And I know for a lot of our listeners, it's going to be like, whoa, Marty, you're kidding me. I'm not, not rabbinically. Judas made his error while being misguided in his understanding of Jesus' mission, but Peter refuses to associate with his rabbi at all. One can see the significance of this moment by watching Jesus' interaction with Peter in the Gospel of John. After the crucifixion, Peter and the disciples have gone home and started working. What's Peter doing, Brent? He's fishing. He's fishing. He's gone back. Peter understands that his time as a disciple is over. Like he has forsaken the rabbi, and this is a cardinal offense. He's no longer a Talmud. He went back to fishing because that's what that was his trade. This is also how the others would have seen it. It's interesting to realize that without the account of John's, just let's just think about this, Brent. Without John's gospel, we would know very, very little, hardly anything at all of what happens to Peter outside the book of Acts. Like just from the gospels, the other gospels stop recording Peter's story of his denial. <laughs> Can you imagine before the gospel of John was written? Oof. It is only Peter's best friend, John, who gives us insight into the personal and intimate reinstatement of Peter as a disciple and as the ringleader of the Havarah. And I'm glad we got his gospel because if I'm reading the book of Acts, I'm really confused. (laughs) Like, how did Peter get back in here? Man. Consider this passage. You got a passage from Mark, the very ending verses of what I like to call the real Mark. Not that pseudo ending, not the false ending of Mark. Give me the uh, address here. Mark 16 verses 4 through 8. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, I cannot emphasize this line enough. Go tell the disciples and what, Brent? And Peter. And Peter. If the angel doesn't specify Peter's name, the women are going to leave him out because Peter is not a disciple anymore. Peter has blown it. He's made the ultimate mistake. You do not come back from denying your rabbi. And yet the authors of the Gospels are adamant throughout that Peter is not the betrayer, Judas is. I think one of the reasons the Gospel writers keep pointing this out is because a typical first century reader, especially a Jewish reader, is not going to identify Judas as a betrayer, but Peter. So what is it about Peter and Judas that makes Judas the one who betrayed Jesus? I would suggest it's the way that their story ends. They both make huge mistakes. One of them misjudges who their teacher is and what he's up to in the world. The other disassociates completely and denies even the slightest connection to the rabbi. Both are wrong. But one chooses to let his story end there, and the other chooses to let himself be reinstated. Now, a very important side note here, Brent. I have no desire for this to become a talking point, a teaching about suicide. I'm trying to speak to the larger, very poetic nuances of the larger narrative. I'm trying to speak to that and how it fits within God's bigger story. I have far too many personal friends of mine that struggle with clinical depression. They battle suicide daily. Uh, Throwing rocks at those who struggle with such things would be a betrayal of the very story we're reading. 
projecting anything other than that into my words here would be inaccurate. I am not making grandiose statements about the choice of suicide or their eternal destination, not even in the slightest. Need to make that clear. It's very important to me. But this story that we read in the Gospels is a story about hope. The only true betrayal of Jesus is what he, and what he stood for would be to believe that there's no tomorrow, to believe that there's no coming back from this. Judas decides his mistakes cannot be overcome. Judas decides his story will end here. Judas decides there is no coming back. Judas is the one who betrays Jesus. But Jesus' entire ministry has, has been and always will be about the God of second chances, the God of third chances, the God of endless hope, bottomless grace, and wasteful love. Peter is willing to walk on a beach with Jesus and face his greatest fears. Peter is willing to stare down his greatest insecurities. Peter is willing to trust that when a rabbi says he's still worth saving and still fit to feed sheep, he means it. And Peter is willing to trust Jesus to give him a new tomorrow. This story has always been a story about new tomorrows. This story has always been about allowing God to write incredible endings. This story has always been an invitation to trust that God says you have value and acceptance and worth. This story has been a reminder that you aren't defined by your biggest mistakes, your deepest insecurities, or your worst fears. Sounds like session one, Brent. It's Cain and Abel. It's Cain and Abel. It's Abraham. It's Adam and Eve. It's Jacob. It's almost any character you can find in Genesis. It's the gospel that has been there from the very beginning. Your rabbi says you have a new tomorrow and accessible, and that tomorrow is accessible for you today. Will you trust him? Betrayal. Thinking about this Cain connection, because Peter's the one who brought up the, the 70 times 7 thing. It's true. Didn't think about that. The whole connection to Lamech and Cain's line. Very interesting. Jesus says to Peter, hey, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. Right. And so Peter goes on. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And even Judas's connection to that too, with, you know, I've killed a man for wounding me, you know, that whole thing. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, relatively short episode for our, uh, for our late podcasting yeah. career here. Yeah. There we go. Uh, coming, coming to the end of session three here. That's right. One more episode, and then we'll do our capstone. Head into session four. All right. Well, if you have any questions, thoughts, any other connections that you're pulling out of this story uh, to uh, other parts of Zachariah or other parts of session one, whatever, we'd love to hear about it. You can get a hold of Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. You can go to BaymontDiscipleship.com. We've got several other ways to, to get in touch there as well. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.